Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the perfectly aligned podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November 16th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And if, dear listener, I can just bore you for a moment with first my usual plea to uh, go to iTunes and rate the show and and help us uh, with your reviews and comments to uh, widen our audience still further. But a second point uh, for those of you who are using one of the more advanced podcast apps. Um, and so, for example, uh, I use the uh, the app Overcast, which I think is just excellent. Uh, those modern apps actually permit us to embed chapters and links. So you can actually click on a link and it'll open in a browser as our guest talks about a particular article, for example. So I hope you find uh, that uh, new uh, feature uh, making uh makes a twill even more valuable uh, and if it doesn't please tell me because it's a real pain to put them in so this week on twill we greet richard saver the arch t allen distinguished professor of law at the university of north carolina school of law his secondary appointments in the department of social medicine in the school of medicine and in health policy and management in the school of public health his research interests include health law nonprofit organizations and torts he's a productive and well-respected scholar and it's great to have you on the pod rich thank you Frank, and thank you, Nick, for having me. So uh, Rich has a fascinating new piece that he's working on about the Sunshine Act. And uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, he was kind enough to come to Indianapolis as part of our health law symposium and talk on the subject. His comprehensive article uh, on that will be published in our health law journal in the new year. Uh, But if you can't wait or you want a gentler uh, slope into the uh, subject, Rich also published an excellent uh, shorter piece in the uh, medical journal Chest in 2014, uh, which really uh, is a great exposition of uh, the subject. Uh, As always, check the show notes and we'll have links in there. Our symposium rotated around the question, uh, what works and what doesn't work in health law and policy? And I remember sitting there in our courtroom as uh, Rich uh, got up to speak, thinking, well, what could possibly not work about the Sunshine Act? Um, It seems like a simple proposition and relatively simply uh, implemented. Um, About 40 minutes later, I was completely disabused of that simplistic position. Now, your article takes a very comprehensive approach uh, to asking, uh, I guess, a couple of questions. What do we know and what do we still need to know about the act? But before you start us down that uh, road, perhaps you could help the listener with... Uh, uh, sort of an easy introduction to the Act and its implementation. Sure. So the Sunshine Act is actually part of the Affordable Care Act. So, of course, one question is uh, whether it will live into the future in the Trump administration. And maybe we can address that down the line. But um, it was added into the Affordable Care Act to bring transparency to the financial relationships between industry and medicine um, because of growing concern about the financial relationships struck between drug companies and device manufacturers on the one hand and physicians and teaching hospitals on the other. So the act requires manufacturers that have these financial relationships with physicians and teaching hospitals to disclose to 
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, their payments to physicians and teaching hospitals during the year. Uh, CMS then gathers all this information and publishes it on a publicly accessible database known as the Open Payments Database. So the idea is if you want to know whether your individual physician or the hospital you're thinking of going to um, has certain financial relationships, uh, you can do a search and uh, all those payments, all those investment interests, investment interests uh, will be listed out. So we have a, a long history through NIH um, and other funders about conflicts of interest. Um, I mean, most of our research regulation rotates around that. We also have very strong fraud and abuse laws. When when the Sunshine Act is, was, was being considered, uh, what extra was it meant to bring to the table that we didn't already have in our um, legislative regulatory mix. Right. So the Sunshine Act breaks new ground in a few ways. First, in terms of how broad it is, um, financial relationships that are over uh, $10 per instance or over $100 per year actually need to be reported. And so that is way broader than some of our previous reporting laws. Uh, the NIH had its own regime for reporting significant financial relationships on NIH-funded research, but the threshold there was only as low as 5000 the FDA has its own reporting laws for companies that seek FDA approval for their clinical trials. Uh, they have to report significant financial relationships with investigators who may be doing the work. But again, the dollar threshold is, is much broader, uh, much higher there as well than the Sunshine Act. Um, we also had a handful of state Sunshine laws, um, Maine and Massachusetts among the most prominent. Um, but the triggers for what needed to be reported, uh, again, typically higher monetary thresholds than what we have with the federal Sunshine Law. And those state sunshine laws did not necessarily cover financial relationships in research like the Sunshine Act does. So in terms of the information gathered, it's the most comprehensive reporting law we have to date. In terms of how it relates to the fraud and abuse laws, um, you know, those laws will try to structure safe harbors for how certain financial transactions should be structured to minimize risk of fraud and abuse. Or then you have the Stark Law, which says if you can't structure a transaction to meet one of the exceptions, uh, the transaction should not happen at all. Uh, the Sunshine Law takes a much more neutral stance and just says, we are not um, opining whether these particular reported relationships are problematic or not. And in fact, in the legislative history of the Sunshine Act, um, Congress went, uh, to, went to great lengths to make clear they were not meaning to cast aspersions on the financial relationships that were being reported, uh, recognizing that some industry medicine collaborations uh, are actually socially important. Uh, what they did want to do, though, was uh, bring these relationships out of the shadows into the sunshine so the markets could understand what was going on so patients as consumers could understand what was going on and then make their own choices accordingly. So before we get to the, the substance of, uh, of the piece, uh, in the uh, introduction, I think you, you noted that uh, the act had a bumpy, troubled rollout, I think the, the words that you used. What, what seemed to be the difficulties there with the regulations and so on? Well, I think what we've learned from the Sunshine Act experience so far is that putting transparency down on paper and legislating it is uh, much more easy than actually achieving transparency on the ground. So everyone thought that this would be kind of straightforward, require manufacturers to report their payments to physicians and have CMS turn around and again, publish that on this publicly accessible database. Um, but then there were a lot of devil in the 
details issues that reared their ugly head uh, in the early years uh, when this was rolled out. First was whether all the relevant financial transactions were in fact being reported back to CMS. You know, any reporting system um, is only as good as the information that comes into it, garbage in, garbage out. And in some respects, critics say that the Sunshine Act is under-inclusive. Um, while the act says manufacturers of drugs and devices that are reimbursed by the federal health care programs have to report their payments to physicians who may be in a position to order or prescribe their products, uh, there's a question whether there are other health care providers who also receive payments and may also be in a position to refer uh, whether their payments have to be reported. So I'm thinking here of ancillary providers like physician assistants and nurse practitioners and also uh, physicians in training like medical residents. And CMS took the view in implementing the regulations that it did not feel it had clear enough statutory authority to require payments to those uh, groups of providers that I just mentioned, the medical residents, the ancillary providers, uh, to be reported. So already there's some concern that some financial relationships between physicians and drug companies and device manufacturers may now uh, be restructured uh, so that the companies are making greater use of medical residents and these ancillary providers, knowing that those payments don't need to be reported. Um, on the flip side, you know, which recipients do you have to report? There's also uh, which payers uh, need to report. Uh, everyone understands that the prime manufacturer of the drug or device, if it makes a payment to a physician or a teaching hospital, uh, those payments have to be reported. But if you think about it, there are other entities in the production chain from when a, let's say, medical device reaches the market. Um, a lot of these prime manufacturers partner with and make um, heavy use of distributors to distribute their products nationally. Uh, those distributors have a direct economic interest in the more the product is utilized, um, they stand to make more money. Um, some healthcare attorneys have taken the view that when a distributor makes a payment to a teaching hospital or to a physician, uh, that payment does not need to be reported into the open payments data base uh, because that entity does not really hold title to the product. It's not considered a manufacturer as the statute envisions it. Um, if that's true, that does mean that there probably are payments going on where we would worry about uh, influencing the prescriber's recommendations and where the entity making the payment has a, a direct interest in greater utilization of a certain product. And yet those payments are, are not being reported. And there's concern that, again, the prime manufacturers strategically may be relying on their downstream partners, the uh, distributors, and restructuring their financial relationships to make greater use of payments by affiliated distributors. Uh, so those payments do not need to be reported into uh, the open payments database. So that's uh, one one large problem here was just capturing all the relevant information. Um, and then a whole a whole another basket of problems uh, deals with how the information is presented uh, into the open payments database. Um, so moving to that, one issue that the architects of the open payments database have been struggling with uh, is to make it easy to use for uh, patients and other stakeholders, something that people could go online and search pretty quickly and find an answer, and yet to present all the relevant information. So what you have right now, and it's hard to, of course, uh, do visuals on a podcast, but if you were to search your own clinician, for example, uh, you would find uh, a page, a web page attributed to that physician and a listing of all companies in alphabetical order who have made payments to that physician in the calendar year. And then each payment needs to be uh, listed by the amount of money uh, that was uh, conveyed and then what that payment was for. And it needs to be placed in a uh, exhaustive list of reportable categories 
categories uh, that the Sunshine Act sets up, whether the payment was, for example, for consulting, whether it was for uh, travel, whether it was to pay the physician a speaker's fee to promote the medical device at a, uh, a local physician association meeting, for example. Um, but that's pretty much it. You will see the dollar amount, the company that made the payment, the product that it was for, and, and one of these narrow list of reportable categories. What you're not seeing is actually very relevant information that we know from other studies of physician financial incentive payments, particularly the literature on managed care financial incentive payments to physicians uh, as to what's really relevant. If you really want to know whether a financial payment to a physician is going to risk significant influence and even bias, you're going to want to know several things. Obviously, you're going to want to know uh, the amount of money at stake, but, but that's not the only thing. You're going to want to know how much of that money is relative to the physician's total income and their other sources of income. You're going to want to know how often the physician and that company have been transacting before, um, whether the physician has an expectation of doing future business with that company, whether the physician is in a position to refer for other products uh, made by that company, um, what was the relative bargaining strength of the parties, and uh, a whole host of uh, associated factors uh, that may, in combination, uh, tell you whether the payment then is really going to run the risk of significant influence and bias. And you're not seeing that all that additional information that I just mentioned when you go to your typical Open Payments Database Act disclosure page. And so um, I think that's a significant problem going forward because patients may be relying on the most salient features that they're seeing, for example, the dollar amount. Uh, when we know from the literature here, uh, it's not all about the dollar amount. Uh, the dollar amount does not necessarily directly correlate one-to-one -one with risk of undue influence. Right. And I just wanted to make a few co color commentary, uh, in, the, in the nature of color commentary uh, on some of this, because I think that uh, leading up to uh, a more bigger picture point, which is to say, you know, I, I have been looking at the ProPublica Dollars for Docs website, which you cited in your, your piece, um, and it is truly a masterpiece of data journalism. It was uh, the lead author is one of our past show guests, uh, Charles Ornstein, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And, you know, it gives uh, enormous amounts of information, $3.5 billion in disclosed payments to 681,000 doctors and over 1,000 teaching hospitals. Um, some initial just glancing at the front page and some, you know, perverse consequences of exactly the type of informed consumerism that you, you just mentioned, Rich, might be that I might look at one of the highest-earning doctors who made over $20 million in payments and say, wow, I guess $100,000 from somebody couldn't corrupt them. They have so much money already. Uh, <laughs> and I also wonder, you know, in terms of like when I see some of the doctors at the teaching hospitals, there's a list of like some teaching hospitals making quite a bit of money. Um, do I take that information and say, oh, they have been influenced to give me treatments that I don't want or might not necessarily be the best for me? Or might I think, hmm, uh, pharma would only invest in the truly key opinion leaders, the people who are way ahead in terms of practice, like, for example, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, which is the third hospital listed on the ProPublica site. And maybe that is, to me, a sign of quality. And so I guess to wrap up this, you know, too lengthy question, one idea I, I guess I'm wondering is, are we trying to uh, leave with consumers far too great an interpretive burden, first to gather the information about their doctors, and secondly, to truly understand the meaning of any given uh, financial transaction between doctors and drug or device manufacturers? Yes, yeah, some really good points in that question. Um, let me come at it in several different ways. Um, 
one, your question identifies another shortcoming with the way the information is presented right now in the open payments database. Not only is there a lack of this additional context I referred to earlier, there's also lack of comparative information. So when I see that my personal physician got $1,000 from a drug company last year, um, how do I know whether that's significant? Uh, how do I know what other physicians are getting? And your typical consumer does not get the comparative information from the open payments database. To add in the comparative information only makes the database more complex to parse. And then you wonder, are patients really in the best position to be doing this? I, I do think the interpretive burden here is pretty significant. Uh, one evidence that we have that patients may not be um, might may not be best equipped to parse all the relevant factors that go into these payments and what may drive undue influence and bias comes from a study by Perry and co-authors that I, I mentioned in this work I'm, I've presented at the symposium. Um, they ran a series of stimulated disclosures to a group of patients, hypothetical disclosures of physicians who had various financial relationships with drug companies and device manufacturers. And the payments had to be reported by those categories, which I said the Sunshade Act requires that you have to uh, put your payment into, whether it was a consulting fee, a speaker fee, et cetera. Um, and what's interesting is uh, they found that generally the larger the payment, the little more concerned the patients tended to be about whether the physician's judgment was truly independent. But even more important than the amount of payment was how the payment was categorized. Um, payments for consulting, for example, and I think this gets back to exactly what you're going at with your question, Frank. Payments to con for consulting were seen by the patients as meaning the physician must be an expert because why else would industry be consulting with them? And if anything made the patients feel more trustworthy of those physicians. Whereas payments for maybe to pay for travel to go to a conference to speak about a product or for food and beverages uh, at a meeting to talk about the product uh, tended to be perceived more negatively by patients, uh, maybe because they were seen more as boondoggles or, or really unearned in terms of work effort by the physician. And so you may have, uh, at least if this study is a guide, you may have uh, patients reacting to the salience of the category of the payment. Uh, and they may be onto something, uh, but we also know that a rule of thumb that, well, if the uh, industry would not be working with this physician unless they were an expert, that's kind of a dangerous rule of thumb too, in light of uh, some of the serious fraud and abuse investigations we've seen uh, about illusory consulting agreements. So it does give us pause for concern then uh, about quick judgment reactions to this data, um, at least the way it's being presented right now. Those are such great examples. And I think the study in particular, uh, looking at the concrete ways in which uh, patients are responding is really invaluable. Uh, it also reminds me of some of the work, I think, done by uh, Kristen Madison and Anne-Marie Marchirilli on consumer-focused rating and ranking systems in healthcare. And, uh, you know, Nick and I have covered various developments uh, in our lightning rounds. And I'm wondering, you know, this would be yet another step back, but in terms of one's overall effort as a patient to understand the quality of, say, a doctor or a hospital, is there a case, for example, to try to build in these types of disclosures and comparative disclosures about financial pay payments from uh, drug device manufacturers into other quality databases. So for example, you might have something like Medicare could, for example, add this to hospital compare um, or physician compare or something. Or would we worry that perhaps, you know, that, that there should be one set of quality measures that is about the quality of healthcare you're getting and another set of quality measures with respect to 
the degree to which your physician is an unbiased interpreter of the uh, evidence base about your condition. It's interesting you mentioned linking this to hospital compare. Uh, my understanding is that CMS has suggested that it would explore doing that as it's refining the open payments database. So, for example, when you search your community hospital where you may be contemplating going for a, a elective surgical procedure, uh, you could find in the open payments database the industry payments that teaching hospital is getting. You then would have a link to the hospital compare CMS website to see how many stars that hospital gets and its quality rankings. So in theory, having kind of a, you can search it all in, in one platform uh, makes sense and that may be where CMS is going. Uh, I do worry though that the more complex we get this, um, we're almost adding to that informational burden you uh, alluded to before. Um, I guess my other, my other bottom line is I'm not really convinced patients are using this in the numbers we want them to to begin with. Um, and I think that the data from the open payments database traffic bears this out uh, for about a almost a year period from 2013 to 2014. I think it was about 10 months. CMS reported that there were just over a million uh, visits to the open payments database web page and about 6.5 million searches within the database. That's really not a large number when you consider that there are over 55 million beneficiaries in the Medicare program alone, let alone um, the number of Medicaid patients, number of patients in uh, all of whom would supposedly be interested in what's in the open payments database. So the traffic here suggests that patients are not coming to this in great numbers. You know, if you build it, they will come. I'm, I'm not sure that we've seen that yet. So that we may need to really rethink whether this platform is, is the way to go um, or whether complementary to this platform, there may need to be other other mechanisms of getting this information out. For example, in, in the work I'm uh, doing right now, I came across uh, some surveys of patients in terms of what they would want, not only the information they would want, but how they would want to learn about it. And um, not a lot of literature on this, as you might guess, but the, the few surveys I've come across suggest that patients would prefer to learn about a financial conflict by hearing it from their, their doctor directly, um, rather than having to go into a, a database to find it. Um, so that suggests that the the way we're setting this up may not accord with patient preferences. Uh, they, they may kind of at least patients who uh, express this preference uh, may want and anticipate a chance to discuss it directly with their physician when learning of the um, when learning of the financial relationship. So I want to ask you both a broader question, and perhaps the broadest question, the basic rationale be behind hospital compare or, or disclosure like this is, of course, the old Brandeis, sunlight is the best of the disinfectants quote. But even in your article, Rich, uh, you quote uh, from uh, Ben Shahab and uh, Carl Schneider saying that mandated disclosure, quote, may be the most common and least successful regulatory technique in American law. You say you probably are not as pessimistic as them, but I, I would like to hear both of you sort of address that issue straight on. Uh, are we placing way too much emphasis on these kind of disclosure models? And and what, what would the preferred regulatory model be? Chapter five of my book, Black Box Society, is, is really focused on transparency models in general. And I think to condense it into something useful for the podcast, here's where I would go looking historically at financial regulation. So in the 1930s, after the Great Depression and the big crash of 29, there were two camps in FDR's cabinet, one of which was the Rexford Tugwell 
Adolf Burley camp, which wanted substantive uh, regulation of finance directly affecting how money was invested. And then there was the Brandis-inspired uh, camp that was much more about let's have disclosure, et cetera. And there's a professor named Henry Hu at Texas who has uh, done great work ex- describing that historical choice. Well, FDR decided to go in favor of disclosure. Um, He felt the other route was too socialistic. And that worked for decades. I mean, or at least it worked to avoid significant systemic instability and mass uh, defrauding of customers, et cetera, et cetera. But as the financial system got more and more complex in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, um, it became what Henry Hu calls too complex to depict. He has an article uh, of that title. And even though he worked at the SEC on further disclosure models, I think he was implicitly recognizing, and I think that many more financial regulators much more explicitly recognize, that in a situation of such extreme complexity, uh, the consumer role is necessarily uh, either negated or severely reduced just because it's so hard to understand. And I think that when we look at the complexity of the healthcare landscape and some of the types of arrangements that Rich has just described in terms of, you know, indirect ways of influencing people, uh, et cetera, we may well be facing a very similar reckoning uh, sooner rather than later. I definitely agree with that. Uh, Tying this back to the critique from Ben Shahar and Schneider, I do think their critique has some resonance with what we're seeing with the Sunshine Act. I I think there are some unappreciated strengths as well, which maybe we can get to down the line. So I don't mean to sound unduly pessimistic, but in terms of the critiques, they worry that these mandated disclosure programs generate information that is too complex for the end user. And I think we've kind of covered why that may be a problem for patients here. They also say that these mandated disclosure programs are too politically uh, attractive in that it gives the appearance of doing something and may detract regulators from tackling uh, more substantive regulation. So with the issue of whether these financial relationships need to be structured differently, whether we need different types of safe harbors, et cetera, uh, we may not be addressing that. Instead, we're uh, stuck on, well, how do we get the information out about these relationships? Um, Hoping that just getting the information out will miraculously do some good. And they warn that what happens is that the regulators then continually try to rework and improve the disclosure program in kind of an endless cycle and never get off that. They also warn about the unappreciated costs of these disclosure programs. And again, I think that has some resonance with the Sunshine Act. Um, CMS estimated as part of its rulemaking that the compliance cost to industry would be about $180 million in terms of having to gather all this information, verify it, uh, using third-party contractors, et cetera, to report to CMS. Um, That's not an insignificant compliance cost, but there may be larger unappreciated costs as well. Um, Economic theory would suggest that while sunshine may deter some problematic relationships, um, industry may be so interested in continuing relationships with certain high referral physicians, uh, recognizing those physicians are going to have some reputational stain uh, of entering into consulting agreements that are now disclosed through the Sunshine Act, uh, that the companies may now have to make even greater payments to those physicians to uh, still have them in um, in a financial relationship. So while you may deter some relationships, you may actually increase the amount of financial influence in others. And it's kind of how hard to sort out how all that balances out. There's also the kind of lost opportunity costs and lost benefits of certain participation of certain physicians in clinical practice guideline committees or on research studies, where because of the disclosure, um, they are now viewed as a 
tainted and and someone who can't be used. Um, Whereas, you know, seeing a bit of a pushback on this whole conflict of interest movement in the last year or two, I'm thinking of articles by Lisa Rosenbaum in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, Beyond Moral Outrage, was one of her articles in a series of articles where she cautioned that, uh, you know, as a result of these transparency laws, if we were just injecting this into a, a neutral climate to let the public just understand that these financial relationships are there and make their own judgments, that would be one thing. Uh, but she worries that instead they're being um, cast into a very hostile environment where there's an assumption that uh, the government would not be telling you about these relationships unless they were bad. And uh, we then may be deterring some very uh, important collaborative relationships between industry and medicine. Um, and if, if anything else, we may be looking at this more of a sense of moral outrage and not a more pragmatic weighing of the benefits and costs of these industry medicine collaborations. I wanted to add something else too, because I don't want to come across as just being this big critic of transparency or thinking it's entirely a placebo or something. I do think that in many areas, for the government to gather the information it needs, it may not be able to frame that information gathering as a prelude to either regulation or criminal or civil enforcement of the law. It may need to frame what it's doing as essentially helping consumers. Uh, And I think, for example, of the controversy over the narrative database uh, in the CFPB um, with respect to credit card complaints. And so I I think that that's a very important aspect of this, just to keep information out there, uh, is this could be the way in which it is seen as legitimate. The second thing that I wanted to ask is to give you a chance to relate um, what has been learned thanks to this law. Are there things, uh, either big patterns, small patterns, et cetera, that we've found out that we would not know uh, if it weren't for the Sunshine Act. Right, and that brings me to perhaps the unappreciated value of the Sunshine Act, despite the uh, many concerns we've just been covering. As flawed as the open payments database may be, it still represents the most comprehensive accounting of industry medicine financial ties to date. So it's really giving us a more robust epidemiology of, of this full network of industry medicine financial relationships. So we're having a better handle now on how pervasive these financial ties are. Um, The first batch of early Sunshine Act data, which covered about five months in 2013, uh, suggested about 40% of physicians nationally have some sort of financial relationship that needed to be reported into the database. That's actually a lower number than had been reported in um, earlier studies. And, you know, we had earlier critiques about uh, industry medicine financial relationships um, being uh, everywhere. Well, they're not everywhere, at least for all physicians, but what we're also learning is that it varies a lot immensely, in fact, by physician specialty. So that 40% number for all physicians, if you go by specialty, then, it, then it, it changes. So for very interventional specialties like cardiology, gastroenterology, um, easily 60, 70, 80% of physicians all uh, in, in those specialties all had some type of payment from industry that needed to be reported into the database. Uh, then physicians on the other end of the interventional spectrum, uh, like pediatricians, um, had uh, you know, less than a third. Uh, so uh, the extent of physician influence uh, varies a lot by physician specialty for one. Um, we're also learning, uh, interestingly, it varies by physician gender. Um, 
even among specialties where we would expect there to be a large degree of industry financial relationships with medicine, such as oncology, uh, the Sunshine Act data, uh, when it's been mined by researchers who were able to then uh, identify the physicians and then identify their gender, uh, they determined that uh, male physicians, perhaps not surprisingly, were more likely to get industry payments. And then even among male and female physicians who were getting industry payments, uh, male physicians tended to get greater dollar amounts. Uh, that may reflect the fact that a lot of the large dollar value payments we're seeing come from physicians who are earning royalty and license fees from products they helped uh, develop that are then being uh, used in practice. And um, it's been well reported for a variety of reasons that uh, female physicians may have uh, been less involved and have less opportunities uh, in the primary research that may lead to royalty and license fee opportunities. Um, but already you can unpack this data to determine very significant predictors of whether your physician is likely to have a significant financial entanglement or not. You know, put crudely, if you're worried about a physician with uh, uh, significant financial ties, uh, that would be your male orthopedic surgeon. Uh, and the physician who's less likely to have uh, financial ties would be your uh, female uh, pediatrician. Um, of course, we don't want to uh, we don't want to profile in that way, but it can be a useful predictor for regulators as they are thinking about concentrating fraud and abuse enforcement efforts and looking at particular specialties where they may want to look at some of these financial relationships. For example, the royalty and license fees in orthopedic surgery are just off the charts, just way higher than you see in any other specialty. Um, and so uh, that may warrant um, not only a, additional enforcement review of what's going on there, but maybe even more specialized rules for safe harbors for some of those royalty and license fee arrangements if we think those large dollar amounts uh, are in concern. Uh, the other interesting thing we're learning is how skewed these payments are even within a specialty field. So I just alluded to orthopedic surgeons who really are the um, heavy dollar recipients. Uh, that's the specialty that gets probably the most industry money uh, as a specialty. But then within that specialty, it's actually a few high flyer physicians who are getting most of the money. Uh, about 2% of the orthopedic surgeons have these very lucrative royalty and license fee arrangements. And the money they're getting from uh, those arrangements accounts for about 70% of the money flowing to the orthopedic surgery field as a whole. So uh, given how skewed this is, how we have a few uh, few physicians at the top with such concentrated uh, large volume payments, again, that can be very useful for reg regulators as to where to concentrate their enforcement actions. Uh, and it also can just make us think more generally going forward, uh, why is it skewed this way? Why their industry may be selectively engaging with a few physicians this way? Um, you know, the, the kind of benign explanation is that they're looking for uh, the well-respected, well-educated, well-credentialed physician in the specialty to partner with. Um, and, uh, and that's why they're reaching out to those physicians so heavily over others. Uh, the less benign and perhaps more alarming implication is that uh, they may be using these physicians as opinion leaders to then uh, leverage uh, others in the field to use their products. And they may have figured out this is a far more cost-effective way to wield financial influence than spreading the money more equally among physicians uh, in the field. And so uh, there's kind of a lot of implications of this data for uh, the fraud and abuse regulators to think through. And I assume that we shouldn't uh, just think about the Sunshine uh, Act 
a database narrowly, but think in terms of how there's going to be data triangulation when CMS has the uh, data they collect on reimbursement through Medicare uh, of uh, physicians uh, and other types of databases that presumably uh, you could mine uh, quite usefully to uh, the benefit of other regulators. That's right. That's another great value of this data that's being gathered. These cross-database comparisons are actually kind of tricky technically because there's not necessarily a unique physician identifier that is common in all the databases, but some analysts have nonetheless done the heavy lifting to try to link up industry payments to physicians in the Sunshine Act database to to the other databases like Medicare's database about which physicians are prescribing which product. ProPublica, which Frank mentioned, has done uh, some interesting analysis here. And for example, we're learning from those combination studies that the greater that industry is spending in terms of financial relationships with a doctor, the greater likelihood that that physician is prescribing costly or brand name medications. Uh, also, we've learned in terms of which products industry is spending its money on, which products is it entering into consulting arrangements with physicians about or speaker fees physicians about. And they tend to be more the uh, Me Too drugs that are not adding much value to drugs already on the market, where it may be more about trying to wield market share and get physician loyalty to, to their brand name drug over other drugs already on the market, as opposed to educating physicians or consulting with them about the true novel breakthrough drugs. So all these are obviously alarming implications uh, of cross-database mining that you're alluding to. So let the disinfectant continue to flow. And that was The Week in Health Lore. Big thank you to Professor Saver for joining us. Rich, tremendous piece, much appreciated. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you, Frank. It was a pleasure to be here. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, where frequently I meet Frank, who is at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 